0: Well, this is the last session, and uh, we're honored to have uh, Charles Plosser here today to give the closing address. And uh, after his talk, he'll take some Q&A, and then we'll go out to the Winter Garden for a nice reception. Um, so we're, we're pleased to have uh, President Plosser here today with us. Uh, he's been to many Cato conferences over the years. Um, even before he was at the Federal Reserve Board. He was a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee, which was started, uh, as many of you know, by Carl Bruner, uh, who was at our first monetary conference, along with Alan Meltzer, who was also at the first conference. So a lot of these folks have been with us for uh, 30 years or so, which is, which is nice. Uh, Charles Plosser, as you know, is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Uh, a position that he uh, uh, entered in August uh, 2006. Uh, Before that, he was the John M. Olin Distinguished Professor of Economics and Public Policy uh, and also Director of the Bradley Policy Research Center at the William E. Simon Graduate School of Business at the University of Rochester. Uh, uh, He also served as Dean from 1993 to 2003, so he's... He's been a professor, a dean, a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee, and now uh, uh, a member of the Federal Reserve System, also a rotating member of the the, uh, Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, Before all this, he was also a professor of economics in the Department of Economics at at Rochester and a senior research associate at the U of R's Center for Economic Research. and uh, he's also been a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, not sure, are you still associated with the NBER? That's what I thought. Uh, and a visiting scholar at the Bank of England and also the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. He's the author of numerous articles uh, in scholarly journals and served as co-editor or associate at, at several leading economic journals. Uh, Charles holds an MBA and a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Please help me welcome
1: Charles Plosser. Thank you very much, Jim, for that nice introduction. I I do feel like I'm an old visitor here. I'm I'm privileged to be back uh, again and uh, and honored to have uh, Jim invite me to come back and give yet another address to to the Cato Monetary Conference, Uh, and so I'm delighted to be here. So um, you know the last five years have been an extraordinary time for the global economy and for monetary policymakers. The financial crisis, the severe global recession that followed have tested our resolve, tested our patience and our economic theories. To restore the health of an ailing, finan- fin- ailing financial markets and economies, central banks have driven short-term interest rates to essentially zero, expanded their balance sheets to unprecedented levels and engaged in market interventions that have blurred the lines between monetary policy and fiscal policy. All these efforts were well-intentioned. Although it will be some time before we fully understand the effectiveness of various actions, some have credited them with preserving the financial markets and saving the global economy from an even deeper recession. Yet today I want to talk about the fact that these actions also carry long-term risk for our economies and our central banks. In my remarks today, I want to focus on U.S. monetary policy and discuss some of the longer-term risks arising from our policy responses to the financial crisis and a slow recovery. I'll then share some thoughts about an approach to monetary policy that I believe would prove more beneficial, particularly in this post-crisis environment. Before continuing, I have to always remind everyone that my views are my own and do not necessarily represent those of the Federal Reserve Board or my colleagues on the Open Market Committee, to which many of them are quite grateful.
0: <laughs>
1: Let me begin by reviewing the extraordinary actions taken by the Federal Reserve as it's attempted to maintain liquidity and the basic functioning of our financial markets, and subsequently to support an economic recovery. During the height of the crisis, the Federal Reserve instituted various liquidity uh, facilities for particular segments of the financial system that were under stress. These programs supported primary dealers, the the commercial paper market, money market fund investors, among others. The Fed also gave support to specific individual institutions, thinking of Bear Stearns and AIG, to avert what was perceived to be the risk of a highly disorderly failure. After reducing the policy rate, the funds rate in this case, to essentially zero, the Fed instituted several large-scale asset purchase programs. The first of these programs of quantitative easing, as it's popularly known, although the Fed likes to call them large-scale asset purchases, commonly referred to as QE1, ultimately involved purchasing $175 billion of housing agency debt. $1.25 trillion of agency mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and the Fed also purchased over $300 billion in long-term treasuries in 2009. The unprecedented purchases of significant quantities of MBS were intended, of course, to support housing, the specific sector of the economy which the financial crisis uh, seemed to center. As market functioning returned to normal, large scale asset purchases however continued but the purpose shifted from providing mo- t- shifted from being a lender of last resort in financial stability to defending against deflation and providing monetary stimulus as the economy struggled to recover and deflation became a concern the fed implemented qe2 a program of purchase 600 billion dollars of longer term treasuries And most recently, the Fed instituted what's now called QE3, an open-ended program to purchase agency MBS at a pace of $40 billion a month, and to continue doing so until the labor market has experienced a significant improvement. In addition to the asset purchase programs, the Fed's been engaged in a maturity extension program, popularly referred to as Operation Twist an intervention that was last attempted with little success, I might add, in the 1960s. The objective of this program is to flatten the yield curve by removing duration from the market. Finally, the Fed has attempted to alter expectations about the future path of monetary policy and the economy by issuing forward guidance about how long it expects to keep the Fed's run Fed funds rate exceptionally low. As of September, that expected date was at least through mid-2015. As a result of all these initiatives, the Fed has now held the policy rate near zero for almost four years. Its balance sheet is three times larger than it was before the crisis. And the composition of its balance sheet has shifted towards mainly longer-term housing-related and Treasury security compared with mostly short-term securities it held before the crisis. Indeed, at the end of this year, the Fed will hold almost no short-term treasuries. Despite these extraordinary efforts by the Fed, our economy remains lackluster. Employment remains uncomfortably high and is declining only slowly. Economic growth is mediocre, and confidence in the future remains subpar. Now, looking at this state of economic affairs, one might conclude that the Fed just hasn't done enough. Since the Fed seems to be missing on the employment part of its mandate, some suggest the Fed can and should continue to pursue more accommodation as long as inflation remains contained. But this isn't the only conclusion one can draw from the evidence. Instead, one could conclude that the factors contributing to the mediocre performance cannot be offset by monetary policy, that is, monetary policy is not the right medicine for the disease that ails us. Now, this alternative hypothesis should not come entirely as a surprise or as some radical point of view. The ability of monetary policy to influence employment has long been recognized as a tenuous one at best. Indeed, the current workhorse models in macroeconomics rely on some form of wage or price stickiness to generate the real effects of monetary policy. As wages and prices adjust, the effects of monetary policy on the real economy should dissipate. In other words, the effects are purely transitory. In addition, the experience of the 1970s clearly demonstrated that attempts to use monetary policy to pursue an employment or unemployment target over a sustained period can lead to extremely poor economic outcomes, jeopardizing both employment and inflation. Now, of course, one might argue that even if there was only a small chance that additional accommodation could put people back to work more quickly, it would be worth undertaking. Yet that would only be true if the potential benefits of such a policy outweigh the potential risk such accommodation creates. I happen to concur with many economists who are skeptical that further asset purchases will have much effect on longer-term interest rates. And even if they do, the declines in long rates are likely to have negligible effects on employment or growth at best. On the other hand, I believe that the extraordinary policies the Fed has pursued pose substantive longer-term risks. These include moral hazard, future future inflation, and the loss of institutional credibility. Let me first discuss moral hazard. In taking unconventional and unusual steps in recent years, policymakers run the risk of altering the public's expectations of how policy will be conducted in the future. This is most frequently discussed in the context of too-big-to-fail. In trying to stabilize the financial system, policies led creditors of large financial institutions to expect governments will protect them from losses. This creates moral hazard, undermines market discipline that creditors exert on firms' risk-taking behavior. Without a clear set of rules or guidelines that tell market participants how such lender of last resort policies could be conducted in the future, the actions run the risk of sowing the seeds of a future credit crisis and excessive risk-taking. Moreover, it's unlikely that regulatory reform as embodied in Dodd-Frank has substantially addressed the too-big-to-fail problem. Indeed, some have even argued that it's expanded the government safety net and thereby, thereby aggravating moral hazard. Yet moral hazard risks are not confined just to the too-big-to-fail problem. By engaging in targeted purchases of housing-related securities, the Fed has affected expectations about what monetary policy will do in the future should the housing market take a sharp downturn. Will market participants now price housing-related assets with the expectation that the Fed will protect the market from significant losses? Will investors in other markets expect similar treatment and therefore be encouraged to take excessive risks? Similarly, well, holding rates at zero for such a long time spur increased and in undesirable risk-taking in the search for higher yields. Certainly, the Fed does not intend to create such moral hazards, yet the lack of clear guidelines as to how monetary policy is likely to be conducted in the future can introduce its own form of instability and uncertainty. Another potential risk is future inflation. So far, the asset purchase programs have expanded the Fed's balance sheet from about $900 billion to nearly $3 trillion. Banks are currently holding about $1.5 trillion in excess reserves in their accounts at the Fed. Now, these reserves are not inflationary in the current environment. Indeed, inflation and inflation expectations remain near our goal, by the way, despite high unemployment rates, in large measures of output gaps, I might add. Yet history tells us that central banks tend to find it easier to lower interest rates than to raise them. Moreover, it's always difficult to identify the appropriate time or moment to begin a tightening policy, even in the best of times. The tremendous expansion in the Fed's size, size of the Fed's balance sheet complicates the challenges the Fed will face when it comes time to begin exiting from this period of extraordinary accommodation. Once the recovery strengthens, and it surely will, long rates will begin to rise. Banks will begin lending out their excess reserves. Loan growth could become quite rapid, and there's a real possibility the Fed will have to withdraw accommodation aggressively in order to restrain money growth and inflation. Now, while economic conditions might evolve very gradually, financial markets aren't always so patient. As soon as the markets Perceive that the Fed might begin to remove accommodations, we could see long-term rates move up quite rapidly. In such an environment, policymakers might need to tighten policy quickly in order to contain inflationary pressures and money growth. Will this tightening require rapid sales of housing-related assets that could potentially disrupt a recovering housing market? The bigger our balance sheet, the more difficult it will be to exit in a way that meets our inflation objective without creating instability in the real economy and thereby undermining both our credibility and inflation and reputation. Now, the Fed's recent policy choices also impose other institutional risk. The purchase of large quantities of housing-related securities, as viewed by some, some commentators and policymakers is a type of credit allocation to one sector of the economy in preference to others. I and others believe that such credit allocations should be in the province of the fiscal authorities, not a central bank. Blurring the boundaries between monetary and fiscal policies can pose important institutional risks for the central bank and ultimately its independence. As I mentioned, the Fed's balance sheet is not only quite large, but it now contains mostly long-term treasuries, long-term securities, not just treasuries, but MBS as well. As interest rates rise, if the Fed finds it must sell assets at a rapid pace to restrain inflation and reduce credit, it would likely incur some substantial losses. Not credit losses, but just from the interest rate risk. So the Fed could be find itself in a position where it may not be able to make any remittances to the U.S. Treasury for some years. Now, from a macroeconomic point of view, this is not terribly significant. But I assure you, it will not go unnoticed particularly in an era when the government will be struggling to reduce deficits. This could place considerable pressure, short-term pressure on the Fed to prevent those losses by tightening policy more slowly than it might otherwise think appropriate. If instead of asset sales, the Fed says, well, we'll try to restrain the growth by increasing the interest we pay on reserves to keep them from flowing out. But of course, this too would reduce our remittances to the U.S. Treasury, as more of the Fed's income would be paid out to the banks holding reserves. Again, a little significance in a macro sense, but it will not go unnoticed, and it risks perceptions about the institution and eventually, again, may put the institution's independence at risk. I admit it's very hard to quantify the risk associated with our unconventional policies, but they are real, and with our recent extraordinary policies, we have sailed into uncharted territory. We need to acknowledge that. We need to proceed with caution and continually assess the potential cost and benefits of these policy actions. So I'd like to spend spend the remainder of my time outlining my preferred course for setting policy in these uncharted waters. Even in such an environment, or perhaps even more so in such an environment, I believe that sound and effective central banking needs to focus on four basic principles. The first principle is to be clear and explicit about the goals and objectives of policy. And in doing so, policymakers must acknowledge what policy can and cannot achieve. The second principle is for policymakers to make a credible commitment to their goals by describing how they will conduct policy in a way that is consistent with those goals. One way to do this, for example, is for the central bank to articulate a reaction function or a rule that will guide policy decisions. The third principle is to be clear and transparent in its communications with the public about the actions that, in fact, are taken. And the fourth principle is to strive to ensure and maintain the independence of the central bank. I believe during the last few years, the Federal Reserve actually has made some important strides on advancing these principles. Most important, in my view, was the statement the FOMC issued in January making clear its longer-term policy strategy and goals. This statement made explicit for the very first time the FOMC's goal of a 2% inflation target. It also explained why it was inappropriate for the FOMC to establish an explicit numerical objective for the employment part of its mandate. In this respect, I believe the statement helped explain certain limitations about what monetary policy can and cannot do. The Federal Reserve also has made great strides in enhancing transparency. It has expanded the quarterly summary of economic projections submitted by participants. It's begun to include information on each participant's view of appropriate monetary policy that underlies these projections. And the chairman now is including press conferences after his quarterly meetings when the SEPs are uh, compiled. Yet I believe we can do more, and we need to take further steps to improve our communications and reduce uncertainty over the path of monetary policy and reduce moral hazard. One enhancement would be to articulate a more fully rule-like approach to our decision-making process. This means making policy decisions based on available information in a consistent and predictable manner. One can never know exactly what the future holds or what future policy decisions will be, but policy should be data-dependent but the data should feed into a decision-making process that is mostly systematic or rule-like and just as importantly, transparent. Research has broadly shown that more systematic policy can generate better economic outcomes and that there are simple policy rules that perform quite well in a variety of models. Of course, John Taylor, the famous Taylor Rule is the most well-known of these simple rules, but there are a number of variations that have been studied including growth rate rules, first different rules that avoid some of the measurement issues uh, that we have when we talk about gaps or levels, natural rates, potential output, such things. But because we simply do not know the true model of the economy, I prefer to focus on a set of robust rules designed to give good results in a variety of models. These robust rules tend to have some features in common. They suggest that policy should respond aggressively to deviations of inflation from a target, but more modestly to deviations of uh, or measures of economic slack, such as output gaps or unemployment. These rules tend to also suggest and exhibit some inertia. That is, some inertia that prevents big swings in interest rate targets and sort of smooths some of that volatility. I believe that using these robust rules and being explicit about such rules are important guides for policy. We can make policy more transparent and make policy actions more predictable. Indeed, articulating rules as guides provides the best kind of forward guidance. It tells you what we'll do under what circumstances. And that in and of itself is helpful in stabilizing the economy and the path of inflation. In this approach, the FOMC would describe its policy decisions in terms of how the arguments of such rules change. For example, we could indicate that we chose to tighten policy because inflation or inflation expectations rose or some measure of resource utilization such as uh, capacity utilization or unemployment or employment growth or an output gap have improved. Conversely, we would explain what we took action to increase accommodation because inflation or inflation expectations fell or some measure of resource utilization weakened. This would have an added benefit of accountability as this approach would require policymakers to explain why they might choose to deviate from these guidelines that the rules provide. That's good communication. With the Fed funds rate at zero and the Fed engaging in large-scale asset purchases, Now may be one of those times to deviate. For example, some economists have argued that because the policy rate has been stuck at zero for some time, policy should be set in a more accommodative stance than it otherwise would be suggested by these sets of rules. Although some of the standard rules suggest that current stance of policy is a bit too tight, others suggest that policy rate of zero is too low given economic conditions. So it's not clear that policy rates today are that far off the mark. While the zero bound needs to be considered in setting appropriate policy, it does not mean, in my view, that the systematic approach I am suggesting should be abandoned or just simply ignored. Instead, I would argue that we use the rules as guides and then explain why the zero bound might suggest us deviating from them, and if so, when that would be appropriate and why and how we might reach going back to those rules. This approach will be particularly helpful when all the rules begin to focus on tightening. I believe this systematic approach is also preferable to calendar-date forward guidance that the FOMC is currently providing. I also think that it's preferable preferable than proposals to use quantitative thresholds to convey policy guidance. The committee first used calendar-date forward guidance in August of 2011 but it indicated that it anticipated that economic conditions would likely warrant keeping the Fed funds rate exceptionally low at least through mid-2013. In January 2012, the committee lengthened that horizon to at least late 2014. And in September, it lengthened it again to at least mid-2015. There is no rule, there are no guidelines about how we determine those dates. Date-based forward guidance is problematic And I said so back in 2011 and opposed this decision for exactly these reasons. Instead, a systematic approach needs to provide data-based forward guidance, and systematic policy rules do just that. Policy decisions should be made and explained in terms of economic conditions, not the calendar. I also prefer these more systematic or rule-based approach to those where some of our colleagues and some people have talked about indicate that we will not contemplating raising the funds rate while the employment is above some level or inflation is below some threshold. Some people call these thresholds, some people call them triggers. Some view these triggers or thresholds as a way to move away from calendar date forward guidance by specifying economic conditions that might prevail when the Fed begins to reverse course. Once either of those thresholds is met, the committee will consider whether to take action or not. That is, meeting a threshold may be a necessary, but it is not a sufficient condition for action. In my view, this threshold approach could co- cause some long-lasting confusion, especially if the thresholds are misinterpreted as the FOMC's longer-term policy goals. How do you decide on what are the right numerical values? Moreover. If numerical thresholds were provided as a way to convey forward guidance for the funds rate, a numerical stopping rule would also be needed to convey when the ongoing purchases of QE3 assets should be expected to end. This means we would have multiple thresholds associated with multiple tools. I think it would be very difficult to describe all the various conditions necessary for this multifaceted tragedy and communicate to the public in a comprehensible incredible fashion. I'm concerned that we would create more confusion, in fact, than clarity. I believe focusing on a statement of our systematic policy reaction function would be a much clearer way to communicate. Now others view threshold as a way to signal that the FOMC will wait a very long time before we tighten policy thought is that this could improve consumer and business confidence and a sustainable recovery, and this will spur increased spending and reduce savings today. But in order for this to work, the public needs to believe that the Fed is making a credible commitment that it will not deviate from, even if it appears desirable to do so at the time. According to this view of forward guidance, the Fed would be trying to manage the public's expectations in a fully credible way. I don't believe there is any empirical evidence that we, can, that we can be successful in such a strategy or that we're as credible as we might think we are or that there is any quantitative significance even if we could. Moreover, even if the action were credible for it to be successful, the public must understand how the Fed is try, is, will be responding to changes in economic conditions after the thresholds are reached. That is, they will need to understand the Fed's reaction function after the thresholds. Will the FOMC tighten quickly? Will it tighten slowly? On what basis will they make that decision? The threshold approach says nothing about that. So to believe that this approach to forward guidance will succeed in providing stimulus, as some people think at the zero bound, we must have an extraordinary amount of confidence in the Fed's ability to manage expectations with complete credibility even though the Feds never bothered to articulate a reaction function, and a systematic approach to policy before. I believe a systematic approach is more transparent than thresholds because it gives the public much more information on how those policy decisions will be made based on changes in economic conditions, not just what will happen at a point or may happen at a point in time. Ironically, had the FOMC uh, articulated and followed such an approach before the crisis, It might be easier to pull off, but to change your policy strategy and to change your approach to policy in the midst of a crisis seems to be destined for failure. In summary, I believe that some of the reactions the Fed has taken to address the financial crisis and the slow economic recovery, while well-intentioned, have created some long-term risks for the economy and for the Fed as an institution. Excessive focus on the short-term can result in long-term problems. Avoiding or ignoring these long-term risks is dependent on the Fed executing a graceful exit from this period of extraordinary accommodation. Such an exit depends on the Fed's ability to be systematic and transparent about its policy decisions and could be enhanced if it could do so. Over the past several years, the Fed has taken some beneficial steps toward increased transparency, which I believe will serve the economy and and the Fed well in the future. But well, I believe the Fed should continue on this path by more clearly articulating a systematic approach to policy making, centered on a set of robust rules as guide to both its policy decision and the way it communicates those decisions. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to take some questions. Yeah, I'll just take
0: them right, yeah, I'll just take oh, right uh, here. Okay. Uh, I can't see out there. It's hard. See, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to see out there. How about way in the back? We haven't called on anybody way in the back. Wait for the microphone. Please uh, give us your affiliation and uh, keep the question short.
2: Um, Bert Ely, banking and monetary policy consultant. Um, I have a a question for you with regard to what happens in the economy uh, when the Fed begins to, to raise rates, specifically with regard to the wealth effect. When rates go up, That, of course, is going to uh, knock down bond prices. And we have an enormous quantity of bonds uh, that have been issued at uh, at very low interest rates. But it also uh, would affect uh, capitalization rates for real estate assets. So it seems to me that when rates go up, we're going to see a significant uh, negative wealth effect, uh, particularly in the private sector. My question is this. To what extent are you concerned about that negative wealth effect, and to the extent that it really starts to bite in the economy, what would the Fed then do?
1: Well, I, I think, as I pointed out, uh, the problem we face is when time comes to exit and we reverse course, you'll have a lot of these effects. Bond prices will fall, interest rates will rise, and uh, then what will we do in the face of that, particularly when it turns 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 to a case of generating more inflation? And... Um, uh, I think you always have that problem in a tightening cycle on, on, on that side. But uh, I really don't, uh, I, I think that, that just sort of is a consequence of being, creating all the liquidity that we've created, <laughs> of sitting in an economy that's been very uh, very sluggish, and all the liquidity and low interest rates that we've kept for so long. And I worry about what's the transition going to look like to get back to a more stable set of affairs. How does, If it all occurs very gradually, as I suggested, things could go, Smoothly, that's a possibility. I think there's reason to be concerned about whether that's going to be the path that the financial markets follow, and then what, how will have, we have to react to that? That could be very problematic, and a consequence of what we've been doing in by taking these short-run views towards policy.
0: Bill, you want to uh, get Bill
1: question? You know, you never take questions from your former colleague
3: and former president of a central of a <laughs> reserve bank. <laughs> It's unfair. (laughs) You you, you do when we're sitting over beers together. (laughs) Um, Here's my question. It has to do with Operation Twist. And I believe that Operation Twist itself is a pretty trivial thing. But the question has to do with transparency and uh, credibility, which is not a trivial thing, as you emphasize. Unless I am really missing something, everything that the Federal Reserve has done to change the mix of bonds and bills held by the public, the Treasury could have done equally well by changing the mix of bonds and bills that it issued. Right. Everything. Everything. Down to the last nickel. So what is the presumed advantage of the Federal Reserve doing it? Has the Federal Reserve ever discussed the advantage of the Federal Reserve doing it rather than the Treasury doing it? Has the the, the Fed has made the case, which I don't think is, is it's really convincing that the twist has a positive effect. But why hasn't the Fed simply then recommended that the Treasury change the mix? And why hasn't the Fed discussed this issue at all, as far as I know? Oh Well, actually, actually uh, I've talked about this issue
1: when we started this in, in several speeches. I made exactly that but, same point. But, but and I Fed think, leadership and I think, is not discussed. And I, and I think that uh, it is a subject that the committee talked about. Um, and I happen to believe that it is inconsequential. It didn't work in the 1960s, and I don't think it had much impact this time as well. Uh, and it is. It's a purely fiscal operation that the Treasury's Department of Debt Management could have conducted on its own. Um, uh, the, only, the only argument one can make is to say, well, if the debt management people either don't do it, then um, is there an advantage to the Fed doing it? Well, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of advantage to that. Uh, And uh, so I think it's a it's a fairly uh, inconsequential action by the Fed, uh, and uh, it doesn't the the advantage that some people would have said well you know at least it doesn't increase the balance sheet which it didn't but it does it has changed its contribution considerably so I think that um, I'm not going to defend the policy because I don't think it was uh, um, it, it was that effective and I do think the other thing is is that you have to ask the question well if the Fed does this what's the reaction function of the Bureau of the Public Debt, they could actually undo it. Um, And indeed, it's hard to know whether they did or didn't. Um, I would say that there's some evidence that they announced a a buying plan in advance. The way you would would, um, determine whether they actually actively undid the operation, did they change that buying plan? There's not much evidence of that, but still, fundamentally, it's an execution, it's a, it's a policy that could have been done by the U.S. Treasury with no, with no, no role played by the Fed whatsoever. Absolutely.
0: How about over here?
1: Thank you. Um, uh, U.S. economy is the uh, largest economy in the world, and the uh, Fed's policy always has some spillover uh, effect uh, on the world economy. And there's some concern from emerging economies that uh, the f- the feds q e1 q e two q e three might uh, cause uh, some kind of flood of cheap money around the world which might uh, increase uh inflation risk or uh, uh, asset bubble pressure for other countries right. so my question is how do you evaluate the spill-over effect of Fed policy. Right. Well, I, th- I think the, the, the view within the Fed, I think, is largely the two, is a sort of two-pronged view. Uh, m- let me first say, I think that uh, Chairman Bernanke, for example, has said, well, it's also in the interest of the emerging economies to have a strong U.S. economy. <laughs> and that, that from, from, uh, the policy, from the view of the policymakers on the FOMC, as we try to um, address the strength of the U.S. Con- economy, that's actually going to be a good thing for the world economy. The second, the, thing, the second thing I think is more challenging about what happens to capital flows and other things as, as the, as the uh, U.S. keeps interest rates very low. I alluded to the fact in my talks, I didn't focus on that too much today, but it is problematic or it is challenging uh, in a world where you keep interest rates in the United States zero for four years. What happens to the allocation of assets? distortion of financial markets in various ways. How does that play out and what the consequences of that might be? And that will show up sometime down the road uh, to the extent, but we don't know where and we don't know how. Uh, I think that's, as I alluded to in my remarks, I think that's a long-term risk that we're taking with our policies. So the way I've sort of thought about this is that we're doing a lot of things that are, we're pursuing fairly risky monetary policies in order to do our best to, improve the state of the US economy. But the longer we pursue these risky policies, the longer term may not be so rosy as we think it might be. And we need to be careful about how we how we pursue those risks. Uh, the Fed has made it very clear in the last, uh, and the chairman and others have made it clear that those, in fact, the chairman made it clear in Jackson Hole when he talked about more quantitative easing and more asset purchases and low long-term rates as he thought about it, he says, because of these factions, because we were kind of in uncharted territory, the hurdle rate ought to be higher for these types of policies than others, and he acknowledged that. Um, uh, my own view is I think we passed that hurdle rate. <laughs> we didn't pass that, we haven't passed that hurdle rate yet because I think the risk remained quite high. How about right
0: here in the satellite?
1: Yes. I don't know where anybody else can, I can hear you
2: <laughs> Okay, uh, two points. Uh, what was the reasoning behind paying interest on reserves? Uh, and secondly, uh, one of the uh, adverse effects of low interest rates, especially long-term rates, that doesn't get mentioned very often is that most of the uh, state and local public uh, employee pension plans are significantly underfunded to the tune of 30 to 40%. And they're still using a nominal rate of return of 8%, uh, which has not been achieved in the last four years and will probably not be achieved in the next three or four years. In fact, the Federal Reserve has said don't count on it. And every year that goes by, these become tremendous unfunded liabilities. Uh, So I like your, your view on that.
1: I agree. That's one of the, that's why, that's why as, I've, as I've been stressing, I think we need to be careful about how we evaluate costs and benefits of our policies. Uh, I, have, I happen to think, my view of the world is one where, um, what we fa- one of the things that we faced in this crisis with the collapse in housing prices is we wiped out a lot of household wealth. Because most household wealth is concentrated in their homes. The perfectly rational and clear answer to what households should do in response to that is save. (laughs) Save more. (laughs) Restore their balance sheets. Um, Public policies, whether it be through fiscal policies in the government or whether it be through um, uh, monetary policy trying to lower interest rates, is what are we trying to do? We're trying to say, no, 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 don't save. Spend, spend, spend. And the households keep saying, no, 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 we're not. <laughs> and, and I think that, uh, I mean, it's a pretty simplistic view of what's happened, but it also it partly explains why I think low interest rate policies that we've been pursuing for so long have two detrimental effects. You highlight the pension cost is one of them. But it also might mean that those households who are trying to save and restore their balance sheet because their equity is gone, they can't afford to send their kids to college anymore because they were gonna borrow from that or as part of their retirement, they're saying, I can't earn anything on my investments anymore so I've gotta save even more. <laughs> so um, there are costs and benefits to all of these and if, and if the truth of the matter is is that business investment is held back because of uncertainty and I talked to a lot of people in the business community and banks They're all sitting on their hands. They don't know what to do next year. I was just with my board of directors this morning, which is why I didn't get into this afternoon, and listening to them talk about financial planning in some very, very large corporations and um, with lots of cash, (laughs) lots of ability to borrow, but they don't know where to put it to work and are unwilling to put it to work until there's some resolution of both some uncertainty regarding taxes and fiscal policy and other things. So lower interest rates is not, going to, is not going to help the business investment side at all. They don't, it's not gonna help them. And for the household side, if they're trying to restore their wealth and their balance sheets, it's not helping them either. Now, arguably there'll be some people in the economy for whom lower interest rates is actually a good thing. If you, if you can afford to refinance your house, you can, lower your, you can lower your mortgage payments and there's some benefit. So there are people who benefit from this, but there are growing people who, for whom it, it does not benefit. And I think, the, uh, I think the challenge is, is that um, um, we won't see a, re- a return to substantive growth until both there's a resolution to uncertainty on the business side and they're willing to see clarity enough in the future for them to begin investing and the households in particular have deleveraged enough and restored their balance sheets so that they're comfortable going back to a more... Uh, uh, positive spending mode. We may be in a world, for example, where in the past people often talk about um, uh, the U.S. economy being consumption oriented and the consumption was a 70% share of GDP. You know, it may be that the future that we see is one where it's not 70% of GDP. Maybe it's only 65% of GDP or some number like that, some lower number in steady state that's going to that's going to take a very complicated transition for the economy to adjust to. It's going to take a transition to what kind of goods and services consumers will purchase in a world where they're only consuming sixty cents out of the dollar rather than seventy percent seventy cents out of the dollar. So there are lots of structural changes that I think that are taking place. And uh, we have to understand that monetary policy isn't the solution to all our problems. And if we continue to face that, if we continue to have a world, and and encourage a view of the world that says we can fix it and we fail then we lose credibility and we lose our ability to control the things that in fact we do i'm very fond i use it all the time and i'll end this with with uh uh i'll, I'll paraphrase it won't be quite right but it'll be close um a quote from milton friedman who said we are endangering of, we're asking monetary policy to do things that it cannot do, to achieve goals it cannot achieve, and in doing so, putting at risk the contribution that, in fact, it can make. That was said in 1968, I believe, or 69, in part of his presidential address to the American Economic Association. I think that warning is at least as apt today (laughs) as it was in uh, 1969. So with that, thank
2: you very much.